So every week we go to the scriptures because it's there that the person and work of Jesus are most clearly revealed. Our sermon this week, uh, our sermon text this week is Matthew 6, verses 7 through 15. Hear the word of the Lord from Matthew 6. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning, Sojourn. My name is Paul Ramsey. Uh, if I haven't met you yet, I am one of the pastors here at Sojourn. I'm so glad to see all of you this morning. Uh, and it's an honor to be here preaching God's word for us from Matthew chapter six. It's been uh, admittedly a long couple of weeks for me um, and I find myself tired and it seems like uh, by God's providence, uh, disaster is about to befall us in Houston as the temperature is getting ready to dip below freezing, unthinkably. And so uh, what better way in between a tired couple of weeks and coming calamity to spend some time together in God's word. So it's a joy to see you and to open God's word. We are in the book of Matthew, uh, partway through a sermon series that we've been walking through uh, here at Sojourn on the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is a, an, a kind of an extended teaching from the book of Matthew, extending from chapters five through seven, where Jesus goes up on a mountain to invite his hearers to a new way of life. Uh, you've heard in previous weeks us talk about the fact that Jesus is proclaiming the kingdom of God. The first words that Jesus says in his ministry are repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is central to Jesus' teaching. And here we are in this beautiful uh, 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 encapsulated part of Christ's teaching on his kingdom where he goes up to a mountain to deliver God's words. As Moses went up on the mountain after the Exodus to receive God's word and deliver it to the people, inviting them to a new way of life that involved living in line with God's justice and righteousness in the world, so too here Jesus is going on the mountain to deliver God's word to God's people, inviting them to a new way of life in line with God's justice and righteousness. And today we come in this sermon to a passage on prayer. This is the Lord's Prayer, which many of you, if not all of you, are familiar with, um, and I'm eager to dig in. If you, uh, are, if you would like to use a pew Bible, it's on page 964 in that Bible, if you'd like to look along there. The words will also be behind me as, uh, as we move along. Here's my plan for this morning. What we're going to do is very simple. First, we're going to look at the Lord's Prayer, look at the words of the prayer itself, and see if we can pull out some observations from what, how Jesus is inviting us to pray. And then second, I want to zoom in on one particular detail that stuck out 
uh, uh, to me as I prepared to preach for us this morning in a way that I think will meet us right where we are in 2021. And so with that, let's dig in. As we look at the Lord's Prayer itself, it follows a relatively simple structure. It opens with the line of an intimate greeting, and I'm skipping over verses six and seven for right now, uh, seven and eight, and I'm jumping in right in the beginning of the prayer, verse nine. Uh, it opens with a line of intimate greeting, our Father in heaven, followed by two sets of petitions, three requests that are focused on the things of God and three personal requests uh, focused on personal concerns. It might be better, uh, honestly, to call this prayer the disciples' prayer, not that I'm recommended that we change the way we talked about it, talk about it in the light of centuries of church history, but this is, in a sense, the disciples' prayer. It's the model uh, that Jesus gives for the prayers of Christians who are followers of Jesus, disciples of Jesus. And it quickly became in the early church, a liturgical prayer. They adopted it into their weekly worship services. And it was also uh, an important part of the Christian life throughout the world. Christians would pray the Lord's prayer three times uh, a day as they went about their lives. Also though, commentators throughout the centuries have pointed out that this prayer was intended as more than just a model for prayer. In addition, to, of course, being a prayer to be prayed, it was also a presentation of a life to be lived. It informs us about what life looks like before the face of God in relationship with God and with those around us. To put it one way, it gives us a philosophy of the Christian life in just a few short phrases. And hearing that, what's remarkable is that if you're not already familiar with the Lord's Prayer, you might be expecting to walk through a long, very involved prayer, but that's not what we see. Instead, we see a prayer that's relatively short and simple. If you were here last week for Brandon's sermon, Brandon preached on Jesus' teaching concerning the, the three disciplines of fasting, prayer, and giving. And Brandon touched on how Jesus' instruction for us in prayer is that our prayers don't need to be complicated or verbose in order to get God to hear us. As one commentator said, God is already and always attentive to his children. And that's exactly what Jesus says in verses 7 and 8 of Matthew 6. When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Here at Sojourn, excuse me, goodness, here at Sojourn, you'll notice that we close many of our prayers from the stage with the phrase, we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Notice that the model prayer here doesn't include that phrase. Right? We include that phrase because elsewhere in Jesus' teaching, Jesus says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. And so we tend to habitually close our prayers by saying, Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And so it's a good thing, but it's important here to notice that that's not a formula. Your prayer doesn't become necessarily non-Christian if you leave out that phrase. The word amen is another great example. Not included in the, original, in the, in the text here. The word amen. Amen is a great word to conclude prayers with, particularly in congregational settings. It's a word that means truly or I agree. And so if you're in a group of people and someone is praying, it's great to conclude or even to sprinkle in amens throughout so that you can signal I agree with what is being prayed. It's a wonderful thing, but it's not required. Lord, I need you is a perfectly complete prayer that the Lord is delighted to hear. Lord, I need you. Now, I don't want to overstate this point. We do need to understand that there is no problem with short, simple prayers. There's no formula that we must follow. But I should also balance that by saying there's also no problem with repetitive prayers 
or with particularly long prayers. In Luke 18, Jesus tells his disciples the parable of the persistent widow. Read the repetitive widow. Jesus also would retreat by himself to pray throughout the night for long extended periods of prayer. When Jesus warns his followers in verse seven not to follow the examples of the Gentiles, his problem isn't with the length or the style of the prayers of the Gentiles. His problem, verse seven, is that they think that they will be heard for their many words. Jesus' correction is simple. He says, your father already sees you. He already knows what you need. He is delighted to hear from you. I hope what I'm saying is making sense. Jesus is giving us a model prayer, which is good, but he does so after giving a clear invitation to come and pray without worrying about getting it right or following, following some sort of formula. I love following prayer models. I remember learning personally for a moment, I remember learning the Lord's Prayer before I was a Christian at the camp that I went to, uh, the summer camp that I went to. And then when I was saved my freshman year of college, I remember realizing I should probably start praying and the Lord's Prayer provided a really helpful way for me to start praying. And it continues to shape my understanding of myself, of God, of prayer. It's a beautiful prayer. Praying the Psalms is a beautiful thing to do. There's other books outside the Bible that are great models for prayer. The Valley of Vision uh, is, is a book that we occasionally use here at Sojourn. It's, it's written in the style of Puritan prayers. Um, there's other devotional books that you read that are very wonderful models for prayer. But also there are times that whenever I pray, I don't necessarily think of a particular format or structure to my prayer. Sometimes in the middle of the day, I'll just pray, Lord, I need your help. I don't know how I'm gonna do what I need to do right now, so please help me. Last year, my wife and I uh, were blessed to have a team of, uh, of people that we were in the process of planting a new Sojourn Church, Sojourn Braisewood. And then we made the very difficult decision, uh, in large part due to COVID, to shut down Sojourn Braisewood. And um, it, was, it was very difficult, but by God's grace, I was given a couple of months in between that decision and starting my job here at Sojourn Heights to, uh, to, to engage. I engaged with a counselor. I, I engaged with the Lord. I, I was able to rest at home with my family. And one of the things that was provided for me was a, just a one-night one retreat. And I remember driving to this retreat and thinking, I know this is a special thing that the Lord has given me. And I know that he's planning for this to be a special time. But I remember getting to this little retreat farm. It wasn't even, it was, I was just kind of on my own. And, uh, and I got out of the car and started walking and I just didn't know where to start. So I said, Lord, I don't know where to start. I know that you have something lined up for me in this time and I'm eager to meet with you, but please teach me how to show me what to pray. What do you want to talk with me about? It's wonderful to use tools to pray, to follow prayer models, but following the model is not what makes God hear you or respond to you with favor. He responds to you with favor. He hears you because you are his child and he loves you. So when in doubt, pray. As we move forward into the prayer itself, Jesus says, verse nine, pray then like this. And he he begins with our father in heaven. And this would have been an eyebrow raiser for Jesus's Jewish hearers. At this time, Uh, Jewish prayer theology was very formal. And a number of times during this sermon already, Jesus has referred to God in heaven as his father and as our father. And then in each of those times, the the Jews listening would have said, "That's, that's not in line with what we understand how you address God. And then when Jesus teaches us how to pray, he begins by saying to his disciples, you too call God your father. 
And so this would have been a particularly eyebrow-raising thing. This is an intimate picture. Jesus is bringing to the forefront, right at the beginning of this prayer, the centrality of relationship in prayer. Jesus, the Son of God, looks at his followers and says, you are my brothers and sisters, and together with me, you share in my sonship. God is your father too. He invites you into his presence to sit on his lap, so to speak, and talk with him. Not only would this have been eyebrow-raising to Jesus' Jewish hearers, but any other hearers, the Gentiles that he refers to, would have been surprised too. This is a very religious culture, and so those who weren't Jewish had their other gods who they worshipped and feared and, 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 and uh, looked to for security. And they came to their gods too, thinking that they needed to come just right, and they had to somehow convince the gods to provide for them. And they would have been taken aback too. This is a new understanding of how to engage with God, your father, our father in heaven. This is also, of course, a communal prayer. It's meant for the life of the church, our father. Each time we pray this, we are reminded that the Christian life is not just me and God, but us and God. Even in this language about intimate relationship with our loving father, we are reminded that the Bible has no category for the Christian life lived in isolation our Father. In heaven, the eyes of our hearts are then immediately drawn up to heaven, to the God who is our Father, but he is also infinite in his greatness and power. He is God and heaven. And then having addressed God in this introduction and finished with our eyes drawn upward to his infinite greatness, we are then brought to the second section, the three petitions that focus on God. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. In our culture, your name is often used for little more than to differentiate you from the people around you. In other parts of the world today though, and certainly in the culture surrounding these events, your name carried far more meaning. One person, you know, a person's name and a person's character, a person's person were connected. So with the qualities associated with a person being connected to their name, the qualities associated with the name were connected to the person. The word hallowed means to be treated as holy, to be held in reverence or honor. And this prayer is not that God would somehow do something that would make his name hallowed. God has already done that. Instead, this is a prayer that God's name would be seen for what it truly is. In the words of one commentator, that he will bring people to a proper attitude toward him. It expresses an aspiration that he who is holy will be seen to be holy and treated throughout his creation as holy. So Jesus instructs us to pray, O Lord, you are holy. Please, would your name be made known throughout the world as holy. Verse 10, your kingdom come. The first words, like I just mentioned a moment ago, of Jesus's ministry are repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom is the central focus of Jesus's teaching ministry. Everything in history Everything in your life, every event that takes place can only be rightly understood in the context of the coming kingdom of heaven. Your will be done. God's kingdom is where God's will is perfectly executed. Thus, in teaching us to pray this way, Jesus is inviting us to look for the perfect accomplishment of God's will, all that God's will, or excuse me, all that God wills, which will take place through the expansion of God's kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. 
And so undeniably, this prayer certainly looks forward to the return of Jesus and his arrival, which will usher in the new heavens and the new earth, which are described for us uh, most clearly in the book of Revelation. But also, this prayer looks forward to that day, but it also looks for those moments of foretaste when God's kingdom expands in real time in the world today through means like lost sinners being reconciled to their father in heaven, justice and righteousness being executed in the earth. Jesus' followers walking in his footsteps and living like Jesus lived in the world around them. So as Jesus teaches us to pray, he instructs us to draw close to our father. And then he sets our minds on the things that are above. God's name is above all names, including yours. God's kingdom coming is the ultimate and central reality, not the coming of your kingdom. God's will be done, not your will, is the best way for all. And then from there, with that as important context for the prayers to come, he turns to our needs, teaching us how to bring those to God. He says, we ask him for our daily bread. This is Jesus saying, come to God for your daily provision. Not your provision for the year, not your provision for the rest of your life, although that would be nice. Later on, Jesus says, don't be anxious about tomorrow. And one of the things that he lists not to be anxious about is what you will eat. Jesus says, your heavenly father knows your needs and he will give them to you. So there's a sense in which this prayer is for us, brings us into a posture of need, reminds us that we don't provide for ourselves, that God does. But also, it's more than just an expression of dependence. It is not just saying, God, I depend on you, and then leaving it at that. It's coming to say, God, I depend on you. Please meet my needs. Please provide. I need food for myself, for my family, for my community. And the prayer goes on. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. You may have heard several different versions of this prayer. Uh, sometimes this is trespasses. That's the one that I first memorized. Sometimes it's sins. But Lord, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against you. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us and so forth. All of those are getting at the same thing. We owe everything to God. And whenever we sin, we do not give God all that he is owed. And so we place ourselves in his debt. And that debt is not a price that we can pay. The only one who can cancel that debt is God himself. Only he can forgive the debt we owe him on account of our sin. And from there, it is only the one who has received forgiveness who is able to truly extend that forgiveness. Conversely, as Jesus says, if we do not extend forgiveness to others, we don't have the right to seek forgiveness from God. Maybe the point here is that we are unable to seek forgiveness from God because we don't know what we're seeking. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. So we come before God, we ask him for our daily bread, for his ongoing mercy in forgiving us as we forgive others. And finally, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I'll make a quick note here about the rest of the prayer that we include here at Sojourn. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. You might wonder where that comes from. If your Bible has footnotes, then it probably has a footnote that says some manuscripts include, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever, amen. That comes from a school of Bible study called text criticism, textual criticism. Not a discipline that criticizes the text necessarily, but a, but a discipline that looks at all of the available resources 
So we don't have the original documents, which are called autographs. We have a bunch of different manuscripts that were scattered throughout the known world that are copies of the, the, the autographs of these books. And so text critics compare all the manuscripts with the little differences and try to put together on a page, this is, as we've combined all of these things, as this is the, the, the closest to the autograph that we can come up with. And as they did that process here, the vast majority of manuscripts include this phrase, but there were a couple of very early manuscripts that didn't. And so most translators leave it as a footnote. Some put it in there, but the church throughout history, this phrase is very, very almost identically presented in Revelation chapter four. It's biblical. It's a beautiful way to close the Lord's prayer with the doxology. And so the church for centuries has included this as part of the Lord's prayer. That's probably way more than you were looking for in that clarification. If you have questions about that afterwards, please feel free to just come pull me aside. But yes, the last phrase for right now is the one that's in the text. Verse 13, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This rounds out the petitions of a prayer that is remarkably thorough in its scope, given its simplicity and brevity. And we get a sense in this closing plea of this war that is going on. Just a few chapters ago, right after his baptism, Jesus had been led out by the Holy Spirit into the desert and he had been tempted by the devil, the evil one. Throughout his ministry, Jesus heals the sick and casts out demons. Often those demons are making people sick. There's this war clearly going on behind the scenes, a war between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the enemy, between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. And in inviting us into his kingdom, in inviting us to follow him, Jesus is inviting us onto the winning side of this battle. But there is still work to be done. And so in preparation for the work that his disciples are to do after Jesus departs, Jesus knows that he is going to his death he will raise from the dead and then ascend into heaven. In preparation for sending his disciples to do the work that remains to be done, he teaches them to pray for continued deliverance from evil or from the evil one. The word could mean either. One of the metaphors the Bible uses for this reality describes Satan, the, the enemy, as one who is prowling around like a lion, seeking to snatch back and devour the sheep that God has brought into his flock. With Jesus, we have nothing to fear in this regard, but we do need God's protection. We do need his continued moment by moment deliverance from temptations that come sometimes on account of our own internal struggle with sin and sometimes on account of the evil one who is seeking to draw us away through our sins so that he can gobble us up. So Jesus teaches us to pray, but he doesn't teach us, he doesn't teach us this magical uh, spell to speak over demons. He doesn't give us this formula for some special hidden spiritual warfare strategy. He says, Father, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Simply that, and then he moves on. We ought to be wise to what is going on. We ought to be wise to this battle that is going on, but there is no secret battle plan that you need to find. All that you need is right here. Lord, please protect us from temptation and please protect us from the evil one. Like I said earlier, Jesus prayed the Lord's Prayer as a model, not just for how to pray, but also as a model for how to think about and understand the Christian life, right? And so as disciples, we engage with our Father and with his love for us in intimate worship. We seek to join with God in the work of bringing about his purposes, his kingdom on earth. 
We depend on him for our personal provision as well as for his ongoing, in real time, mercy and deliverance. And this is something that we never graduate from. When, when we approach God as his children, this is not necessarily baby children. It, the Bible describes people who are new to faith as spiritual infants. So you do start as a spiritual baby. But Jesus prayed this prayer as a mature adult. We do approach God as children, always. We are always his children. We come to him with our needs, but we don't need to see ourselves as babies. I have two beautiful and wonderful daughters. Tallulah is five and Harper is three. And they're both learning to receive what it means to receive Lindsay's and my love as their mom and dad. When they were toddlers, their method of receiving our love was, very, was entirely passive. We fed them, we changed their diapers, we took them on trips, we gave them toys, and they just received them receive those things. They would ask for things and then they would thank them when we prompted them to thank us, but their receiving of love, truthfully, was quite passive. When they said thank you, they didn't really know what they meant. They just knew that they were supposed to say it. For their whole lives thus far, I've told them of my love for them over and over again. And whenever I ask them if they know that I love them, they say yes. And when I ask them how they know, Tallulah, our five-year-old, will say, you tell me all the time with some sort of, with, with some exasperation. And I know that eventually they'll understand more personally and experientially, right? That Lindsay and I love them and their thankfulness will become more heartfelt rather than rote. But rote is fine with me. I don't have to wait until they can understand before telling them what is true. I will simply continue to tell them what is true time and time again as they gradually, moment by moment, year after year, grow to a greater understanding of what that means. I know that it won't be a one-time click one day when they're like, ah, I get it, my dad loves me. It's gonna be a gradual thing. It'll take a lifetime to understand, the same as it is for me, as it is for you, of your parents' love for you. And similarly, with the Lord's Prayer, it will take us a lifetime to unpack what this means. God is our Father who loves us, who invites us to draw near to him. God's will is what is actually best, not just for others, but for us. His kingdom coming to bear is way better than your idea of what the world should look like. God is your provider and today's bread is plenty. Sometimes it's even better for you that you don't have a year stocked up in the bank. It'll take us a lifetime to unpack what it means to engage with and receive God's love. Like a kindergarten teacher giving her students a grid to trace as they learn to write their letters, Jesus gives us this model prayer to teach us how to make sense of the beauty and relationship that God has extended to us. Eventually, kindergartners grow up and they don't use grids anymore to write letters, but those letters are inevitably gonna be shaped by that work that they put in early on with the help of that grid. Same too, our prayers don't necessarily need to look exactly like this all the time, but they'll be inevitably, the imprint of God will be on our prayers as we learn the kind of relationship that God has extended to us and the way that we have been invited to come near to him as our father who loves us. To zoom in on something though, as I was preparing the sermon for this week, I was struck in particular by one thing that's in the middle of this prayer. You probably noticed that there's one request in the prayer that is conditional, one condition that Jesus includes to say, I'm asking for this on account of something that I've done. In the context of this prayer, 
the forgiveness of God for us is based on our forgiveness of others. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And just in case we missed it, Jesus hits it again after the end of the prayer, verse 14. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you, verse 15. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. There's a lot here. I wanna look at just a, a couple of things together. First, notice that in this clause of the prayer, forgive us our debts. Jesus is inviting us to pray for forgiveness regularly. This is something that some of us in here might need to pause on for just a moment and consider the implication. At the heart of the gospel, the good news of Jesus is the great forgiveness that has been offered for us once and for all. When we place our faith in Jesus, our sins are covered and we are fully and freely forgiven, not on account of anything that we've done, but on account of what Jesus has done for us. But here, it seems as though we need to keep asking for forgiveness. When we first come to faith in Christ as Savior and we receive his mercy, that is a beautiful moment when you receive God's mercy for the first time. But the reality is that after this happens, you do continue to wrestle with sin and give into it. And we also continue to grow in our understanding of the holiness of God, which highlights more and more the depth and seriousness of our sin. But the beautiful thing is that as our knowledge of these realities grows, so too does the beauty of the finished work of Christ on our behalf. It's almost paradoxical, paradoxical, but, but the more sinful we realize we are in the depth of our sin, alongside the holier and holier God appears in our mind, the more beautiful it is and the, the bigger the gap that we begin to comprehend. That's what Jesus had to do for me. What starts as a, as, a, as a realization that is this big is in hindsight becomes bigger and bigger and bigger as we become more and more overcome with the gulf that Jesus had to cross, the, the price that he had to pay to come down and resolve the debt that we owed God in heaven and to raise us up and seat us with God in the heavenly places as the apostle Paul puts it. So Jesus invites us to continue to ask for forgiveness, but he goes on and says that we must forgive or else we will not receive the forgiveness of God. What's going on here? Why does forgiveness get this special treatment? Why is it so central? To zoom out for a moment in this series thus far, like I mentioned just a moment ago, we've spoken about the fact that Jesus is inviting people into a new way of life. He is presenting life in the kingdom of God. And I mentioned that there's two kingdoms, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of the enemy. From the very beginning of the Bible, there have been these two kingdoms. One is the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of righteousness, which is a kingdom of peace. The other is the kingdom of this world, which ever since the fall in the Garden of Eden has been characterized by sin and by division and violence. Throughout history, these two narratives persist. There's the kingdom of peace and the kingdom of violence. There have been many nations and and kings and authorities in the history of the world, but the narrative is always the same. You are the one who should be in control of your own domain. Time and again, from the very beginning, with the sons of Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, where Cain kills his brother Abel out of jealousy, we see that this man-centered narrative leads to nothing but division, anger, violence. And these two kingdoms are not merely worldviews. 
They're living and breathing narratives backed by real storytellers. Jesus makes this clear. On the one hand, you have the narrative of the kingdom of heaven told by God himself through his word and proclaimed by his emissaries that are sent in the world to proclaim his glory and the gospel. On the other hand, you have the narrative of the kingdom of this world, which was first told by a real and powerful enemy whispered into the ear of Eve and then propagated by those who subscribe to that worldview who say things like, it is all about you. You need to protect yourself. You need to go get what's yours. It's all about your happiness, your way. And the question is, which of these two narratives is the one that undergirds my life? Which of these two narratives is the one that undergirds your life? If you're living your life in accordance with the narrative of the world, then forgiveness will be quite hard. Read social media threads. Watch the outcome when someone is caught in public or even private wrongdoing. And you'll see that today, I would say a prevailing ethos of our cultural moment is a world that is marked by division and distrust of one another into which a word of encouragement to be forgiving would be laughed out of the room. Forgiveness, according to a counselor named Aaron Cerrone, is a decision and a promise to release a person by canceling the real debt the person has with you. In the narrative that says you are due what you are owed, you have every right to go and seize that which you are owed, that you should be expected to do so, the decision and promise to release a person by canceling the real debt that that person has with you is unthinkable. Even for those who have been brought into the kingdom of God, who are seeking to live life in the context of this narrative, find forgiveness to be incredibly hard. Later on in the gospel of Matthew chapter 18, Peter, who is probably wrestling with this exhortation of Jesus to be forgiving, comes up to Jesus and asks him, Lord, if my brother sins against me, how often will I forgive him? As many as seven times? Peter probably thinks he's being generous. Remember, you might remember Jesus' response. Jesus says, I tell you, Peter, not seven times, but 77 times. Right after giving this answer, Jesus launches into the parable of the unforgiving servant uh, to give color to what he means. He tells this story. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like, uh, uh, maybe compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And in this parable, a king brings a man before him who can't pay him what he owes, a man who is in debt to the king. And the man falls on his knees before the king and begs for forgiveness. And the king says, yes, I forgive you your debt. Totally freely forgiven. And the amount of the debt that is forgiven is staggering. Jesus says 10,000 talents. That's 10,000 times 20 annual salaries. This is potentially billions of dollars. If we think to today, the point that Jesus is making is clear. We each must apprehend, fathom, and feel the weight of this unpayable debt that we owe to our God on account of our sin. Jesus is waking us up to the problem of our own sin. Our offense against God is 10,000 times worse on the low end than any sin someone could commit against you. The truth is that we are dull to the height and breadth and depth of our sin. When we are sinned against, we are convinced, I would never do something like that. But like Nathan coming to David in the middle of David's judgment against this hypothetical wicked man, Jesus comes and says, you are that man. you are just like the person who sinned against you. 
we are dull to it. And because if, if you know, notice what the servant does in the parable and just to, he asks for a payment plan. Here's what Jesus says the servant does. He says, the servant fell on his knees, imploring with the king, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. This servant thinks that he can pay the master back. We think that we can pay God back, that we can balance our sins with our righteous deeds. And listen, self-righteousness is poison to forgiveness. Jesus digs right to the heart of it. He says, releasing others of their debts to us is nothing compared to God releasing us of our debts to him. But he's done it, and at the highest cost, because even as we can't fathom the depth of our sin, we can't fathom the love of God for us in Christ. Sure enough, this man who thinks that he can pay the king back for his debt goes out after having been fully forgiven and, and grabs one of his debtors by the neck and says, you must pay me. He, hasn't underst he doesn't understand what's happened. It was, a, it was a real sum. It was 100 denarii, which was something close to probably $10,000. So it was a real sum of money. There was nothing close to what this servant had been forgiven of. And hearing about this behavior, the king chases the man down, revokes his forgiveness and throws him in prison. And Jesus' concluding words are very similar to what he says here in Matthew 6. Six, he says, so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Can you picture Jesus engaging with Peter on this question? Peter saying, how many times should I forgive my brother? Seven times? And Jesus in the back of his mind knowing how just extraordinary the grace that he has already shown Peter and that he's getting ready to show Peter and taking the cross for him. It's like a father whose son owes him a lot of money who sits down for a meeting with his son, getting ready to tell him, I'm just going to forgive you. You never need to pay me back. And then the son goes and starts rattling off all the people who owe him and all the people he's going to chase down. I'm that father. I'm probably going to take, take it back and not tell him. But Jesus doesn't take it back. He hears Peter. He says, I tell you 70 times seven. And just a couple of short years later, likely, Jesus took the cross, paying the highest cost imaginable so that we could be welcomed in. And as, as Jesus was dying on the cross, he knew that we didn't understand what was happening. As Jesus was dying on the cross, he didn't say, man, they still don't get it. I wish I wouldn't have done this. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. to a people who don't understand the depth and breadth of our sin. Jesus goes before we could possibly comprehend and loves on us all the same with an extravagant, generous love so that we could be welcomed into his family. And so it's with our eyes fixed on him in this way that we begin to see that the debts that we are owed are not just minuscule in comparison, but that Jesus is the guarantor, guarantor of those debts as well. Listen, this is kind of the key to understanding the economy of the kingdom of God. Our king has not made a way for us to find peace on our own. Our king has made peace by the blood of his cross. And he invites us simply to enjoy it. Our king has not just guaranteed the debts that we owe to him. He has also guaranteed all of the debts that are owed to us. He looks at us and says, not only have I forgiven you, but that thing that your brother or your sister did to you, I have paid that debt to I will pay it back to you in full. I will guarantee that debt so that you don't have to go and exact it from that person. I have covered that wrong as well as yours. So go and forgive 
So in this beautiful prayer that Jesus gives us to pray, as we come to the Father, we pray for provision, we pray for deliverance, we pray for forgiveness. And we who have been forgiven much can say, Lord, forgive us as we forgive those around us. He invites us to a better way than retaliation, than self-protection. To quote one theologian who who is thinking about Jesus' words to Peter in that parable that I just mentioned, this theologian says, Jesus is clear with Peter and with those of us looking over Peter's shoulder. Jesus says, I've come to reverse this tendency toward retaliation and self-protection. My desire for you is to entrust yourself to me and to deeply forgive others. And Jesus is worthy of our trust. His sovereign hand is in the course of events and over our lives. We may not understand God's plan. When another person means evil against us, Genesis 50 tells us that God means it for good. He even uses another's sin against us in redemptive ways. It's God's will, not the will of people who hurt us that is the controlling reality in the details of our lives. If God isn't sovereign, then bitterness, self-protection, and revenge make sense. But when we perceive and embrace God's sovereignty, we are able to forgive even the deepest wrongs. This is why we cannot bear a grudge or take revenge. This is at the heart of forgiveness. So if you're struggling with forgiveness, look to Jesus who hung there on the cross and paid the highest price imaginable for your sake and ask God that his will might be done in your heart and in your life so that you can forgive as well and in so doing bring about his kingdom make much of his name in the world this is one of the threads that ties together the Lord's prayer forgiveness mercy all as a part of how God's kingdom works And it is but one of a number of facets that we could have gone into this morning. But sojourn, may God shape us more into people who look like his son as we live lives of prayer modeled by the Lord's prayer for his glory and for our good. Amen.